This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every other week, that's what we aim for, we aim for every other week, on a semi-regular schedule, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we sit down with Luke, who was active in Kansas City uh, during the period of Red Guards activity in, I guess, the middle of what I guess we're now calling the teens. Is that what we're calling it? I'm not sure, because I know there's like 2011 and 2012, and those aren't like teen, those aren't teen years, but I guess they'd be a part of it. I don't know. I'd have to look this up, but I don't want to. If you know what the answer is, write and, and tell me and explain it to me, because I don't know. Anyway, so we sit down to basically talk about the Red Guards. This is uh, the latest installment of The Joy of Sets, uh, an ongoing series that we haven't worked on in years. But we're doing it again. We're talking Red Guards. That's what we're doing this week. So enjoy. And we're live. Okay. Um, so, I'm going to try this again. Uh, it's been a while since we did a Joyous Sex episode. Uh, since I guess, you know, we'll probably have more time because of, uh, you know, the ongoing pandemic. Uh, maybe return to the series and talk about the organization that even, the Maoist organization that even made Jason Unruh go, what the fuck is going on here? Uh, of course, I'm talking about uh, Kansas City Red Guards. Uh, we have a guest on today, uh, Luke, to talk to us about uh, just kind of what this organization is, uh, why why it is the way that it is, why it does the things that it does, and uh, what there is to be learned uh, from this example. Hopefully. Yeah, I hope everyone's uh, ready to self-crit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm self-critting all the time. Great. That's... That's how it's supposed to be. Um, yeah, so I guess, I don't know. Um, I mean, the thing is, like, to me, I guess Red Guards, you know, my image of these kind of groups, I guess, comes from the um, comes from the movie United Red Army. I don't know if y'all have ever seen that flick. No. Is that the one who's seen that? I uh, I know what it's about. I'm, I'm probably not going to watch it, but why don't... And, as Jake describes the movie, you'll understand why I'm probably not going to watch it. Yeah, so United Red Army, um, it starts with like this montage of like the like the late late sixties like Japanese mostly student protests and like fights with cops and stuff, and then it goes into this group that basically decides to do protracted people's war in like the Japanese countryside, and so they they sequester themselves in like this like cabin retreat. And then they start to basically have, like, this kind of endless series of, like, self-criticism struggle sessions slash, like, show trials. And just slowly, like, basically murder, like, most of the cadre as a result of, like, these different, like, I guess, like, revolutionary crimes. Until eventually, like, the the what's left of the forces, like, emerge out and then hold themselves up in, like, this house they commandeer and then fight the cops and lose. And that's kind of, that, that's the United Red Army. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to be that sort of, you know, aimless, like, 
directionless, like self-cannibalizing pattern, if not always that extreme, seems to befall the kind of organizations that attempt to like adopt the strategies developed by guerrilla groups in the third world in circumstances where it makes zero sense to try and do that. <laughs> um, so when I see stuff like pop up like Red Guards, I'm like, I feel like I kind of know how this story goes. Uh, and they, especially when you see weird shit, like I guess they like had like a pig's head that was like severed and so that was like a warning to the DSA or something. And they beat up like they beat up some old man. Maybe let's start there. Like what what was like beat up old man gate? Like what happened with that? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. So, I mean, that was see, I'd been out of their mass organization, uh, serve the people for gosh, probably about a year and a half. And uh, shortly after that, I think they formed a new mass organization called uh, Revolutionary Workers Movement, uh, which was basically kind of an attempt to build a communist union, like kind of a mass generalized union for workers, or at least a site for, you know, communists in the labor movement uh, militants to kind of converge and uh, develop their politics in alignment with Maoism. Uh, but what had happened was, so this organization had been kind of percolating for a little bit. Uh, a number of the members, a uh, number of the cadre, in fact, were uh, Red Guard members, were uh, in the building trades uh, and so were already kind of in unions had entered in. Um, and that was a source of kind of heated debate within the mass organizations earlier. Um, but this group had ultimately what had happened was they'd recruited some people who were non-cadre. Uh, and this was about the same time when the UAW contract negotiation and strike was going on. And ultimately what happened was they show up uh, they to the picket, across from the picket, and kind of counter-protest, describing how the labor bureaucracy had sold out the workers, uh, and as such, they should abandon their picket and join theirs, um, because theirs is on the right side of history, they have the correct line, etc., etc. Of course, everyone in the labor movement, everyone in DSA, everyone in the kind of the broad left of Kansas City, uh, basically just laughed at them and told them what idiots they were. Um, and so in response to this, uh, after being roasted endlessly for about their entire existence and, or since the DSA existed in Kansas city, um, anyways, uh, they got fed up with it and decided to disrupt, uh, a kind of a meeting of the DSA. I think, I don't think they went in with the intent to beat up an old man. I think they went in with the intent to just like shake things up and, chant about why Gonzalo thought was correct and why DSA members were uh, right deviationists uh, and anti-communists or whatever, or petty bourgeois. Uh, But someone confronted them, uh, actually I think the old man that they beat up, uh, and told them to get the fuck out. (laughs) And so they kind of got, they themselves got rattled and, and decided to beat some people up and then run off. That, I okay. mean, that's what happened. So why why did they target DSA exactly? Um, was it because like DSA was like supporting the union basically, 
and or was it just they or the what why why DSA like if they're going after the union with like this counter picket uh, why did they, they they basically just got tired of being like made fun of I guess by local leftists and like DSA was kind of the poll that people were coalescing around at the time is that kind of the deal yeah I th- I think that's partly the case and but this is actually kind of like kind of a about the entire story arc of the Kansas City Maoist milieu yeah sorry maybe we maybe we shouldn't do this interview ADD style let's go from the no 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 this is this is a perfect place to zoom out. Yeah. I, I think this is actually, yeah, no, I think this is actually ideal. So I think the entire history of the Kansas City Maoist milieu is one that, as you would expect, uh, is rife with uh, kind of interpersonal conflict, uh, particularly with those who come out of what they call like the postmodernist cliques or the, the identity politics cliques or the anarchist liberal cliques or whatever that had kind of joined and participated, uh, made some criticisms, you know, some fair, some unfair, some as bad as, you know, what the Maoists were kind of propagating strategically. Uh, But at the end of the day, um, these carried over to an insane degree. So so some left, um, and when they were expelled or they left or whatever the circumstances were precisely, um, there was an ongoing campaign of harassment by the Maoists of these people. Many of these people were uh, members of organizations like John Brown Gun Club or IWW or Food Nut Bombs. Uh, And so they spent a lot of effort polemicizing against anarchists in Kansas City specifically because of this. Uh, And in specific... uh, two of the IWW members who ultimately became DSA members. Um, and they're kind of, they've been kind of long running, at least a decade long or so since Occupy kind of fixtures in the Kansas city leftist kind of universe, which is quite small and had not really been organized in any substantive way until kind of some proto IWW stuff got going on. Uh, and, actually the Maoist organization itself. Um, and so these two people were actually at that meeting and the old man who confronted them were one of the, was one of the people who they had kind of the most intense and focused kind of outrage at and online harassment and real life harassment <laughs> since, since kind of the Maoist anarchist uh, conflict came out. Um, so this was something like personal with this guy specifically that boiled over, you know. I mean, he was definitely a target because he had been a specific person that they had targeted for a oh, long okay. time. They just did. They, was he? He was like a leader or something, or he was just somebody who um, just they didn't like his line or whatever. I mean, he was like outwardly critical of them. I mean, he was an anarchist, or he is an anarchist. Um, and outwardly so, and actively criticized them, and actively told people not to join them, and actively, like, very much kind of antagonistic towards them in that way. Yeah, I was just trying to figure out, because I guess the image I had seeing it online was like, like, what, like, the, I got, I see, I didn't know he was an anarchist. The impression I just kind of was like, because I feel like I've, I've known guys like that, and so I was just like, like, why are you, why are you harassing this old man? Like, let him have his table with his little Howard Zinn books, you know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he's a great guy. Uh, but yeah, and again, I don't think they came there to target him specifically. 
It's just that when he told them to fuck off, like they got so shook, they were they there lost to all discipline. And yeah, when they were challenged from grandstanding, they lost all discipline and just attacked an old guy. And then, and then they had to deal with the consequences by saying that I don't know that the DSA are cowards and the KS Moto, which is kind of the DACA organization in Kansas City called the cops on them, which shows how liberal that they are and how they really don't care about the immigrants that they're trying to protect, all this stuff, right? So they had to propagate this, like, huge story to demonstrate why everyone else is wrong and they were right for attacking an old guy. Yeah, that's, like, kind of what happened, you know? And and this conflict is also, like, deeply org- part of the kind of organizational history of Kansas City, which, again, had been largely unorganized as far as I was aware. Maybe there's, you know, there's some substantive left organizing outside of in communities that I'm unaware of. But uh, like, again, like the Maoists were kind of the first to start organizing some sort of socialist communist grouplet in Kansas City outside of the IWW. Uh, Then the DSA popped up about eight months later uh, a year later or so. And there was kind of a peaceful coexistence for a while until, again, they had to expel these IWW members. There was an effort to build like a united front called the Kansas City Grassroots Network, uh, where because all the other organizations didn't want to give the Maoists all the credit for what was going on, uh, the Maoists decided to wreck <laughs> and so on and so forth. Do you know anything about Because I, I think you said you're from Kansas City, right? Uh, yeah, I grew up in rural Kansas and rural Texas and went to college okay. in Kansas City. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so like, you know, can you talk maybe a little bit about like the deep history of, of, cause I know like in, like where I would live, like in Tampa, like there is like deep history of, um, leftist stuff here, um, and labor and working class struggle here, but it's very discontinuous, right? Like there's no... There's been things that happened, and then it collapsed, and there was another thing for a while, and then that collapsed. There's no continuity, but there are things. Is it is it similar in Kansas City, or is it— Yeah, so I mean, as far as, like, the Kansas radical history, um, so the town I grew up in, Osawatomie, uh, for the first half of my life, uh, was where John Brown was. So I was, like, kind of very deeply aware of that deep history, and so was everyone in that town. Uh, there's like signs about it everywhere and people like kind of actively celebrated that person. I was kind of rudely surprised or rudely awakened to the fact that not everyone liked John Brown when I moved to Texas, you know, but, (laughs) but like the thing about Kansas is it's so spread out. All of the towns are so small, except for Wichita, Topeka, Manhattan, Lawrence, and Kansas city that like, I think it was like the blue book. I forget what organization it was, but there's like a, communist or socialist publishing company or populist publishing company in like a small town in Kansas where the coal mines were and stuff like that. So there's like all of the, like it's all kind of disparate and isolated. And unless you're from those towns, you're very unaware unless you're kind of interested in that deep communist history. Um, as far as Missouri goes, kind of there's a deep history of uh, kind of like, Southern pride, I guess, like this kind of like Southern milieu, um, so much so that it's kind of brought up in the cross-state rivalries, the border war and stuff like that. Um, and Kansas City did have a radical history at one point in time in the Black Liberation Movement. There was some rioting and stuff that had happened. Um, there was a Black Panther chapter there. I, I got to mention, I got to meet 
people who were involved with that uh, while I was like, and also members of the SWP who had a bookstore there who collaborated with them. So like there is this deep history, but many people, because it's been dormant for, for so long, see what's going on in Kansas City right now, the kind of the ongoing radicalization and organization as kind of a process of restarting everything or starting something for the first time. Right. right. Yeah, that, that, yeah. That's, and, that's pretty typical. Yeah. Well, generally speaking, in coastal cities, um, you tend to have a bit more, and I say coastal cities, that's mostly where I've lived. I've lived, you know, outside of them, like for, you know, a year at a time sometimes, but mainly I've been like around New York City, around San Francisco, you know, pretty much it. Those places tend to have more continuity. They tend to have like... They tend to have more of a sense of like organizational continuity within the left, I should say. Um, when you get out to like heartland cities, like you said, you grew up um, in a sort of rural environment and, you know, came to the city. Um, that's more that's more typical, of like a heartland city. You have much different dynamics and like there's different ideologies that appeal to different cities. Like I find, you know, for instance, avant Marxist, like left com stuff. I find that stuff mostly in like um, city lefts and then, you know, social democracy and whatever, but a sort of bookish kind. And then in the heartland cities, you know, I do see a lot more like, um, I just see more Leninism across the book, excuse me, across the board, actually. I think that's something to do with the way. CPUSA's like, you know, looks in the history books when you're in a racist ass place. Um, but um, I, w I wanted to ask a bit about like, you know, your background and like how, you know, getting integrated with leftism worked for you. And what was it about? Like, how did you encounter their ideology, their specific brand of ideology when you got there? Not just their org organization and demeanor, which I'm also interested in. Um, uh, how did I encounter Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, principally Maoism? Yeah, that, like how did you, <laughs> like from front to back, from like being a wide-eyed child to coming to, you know, see the light of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, you know what I mean? Like how did that unfold yeah. for you? Yeah, so for me, I had already been uh, an organized socialist um, for about three years prior. I had, I belonged to and still belong to the same organization, uh, which is kind of like a non-sectarian socialist grouping that kind of comes out of the IS, International Socialist Tradition. Um, I had kind of gotten radicalized in college after having read some marks and stuff like that. I went to the University of Massachusetts um, to study economics, specifically Marxist economics. Um, I became radicalized. I was like, I got to know everything. So I went there. Um, and I, you know, I attended a lot of different sort of socialist meetings. Um, I got really involved in my union. I attended an ISO meeting, um, which you know, it was not for me. It was a little, I, I don't want to say culty, but like the democratic centralism was very much present and was something, hey, I, don't, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't think it was culty. I, I mean, okay. like not, in, not in the same way that like the red guard mass organizations are, 
Like, I mean, there's cults would... and there's cults, you know, but yeah, yeah. But this was more like you, the democratic centralism was there in a way that I was very uncomfortable with. Um, so I eventually joined the organization that I did um, and eventually moved from Massachusetts back to Kansas City. Um, I had followed kind of uh, Kansas City One Struggle, which was kind of uh, a black liberation grouping, uh, which had worked with uh, the Revolutionary Collective and the Progressive Youth Organization in that time around Black Lives Matter. So that's kind of the source point of kind of that Red Guards milieu is there. Um, So I'd followed them for a while. And, you know, part of my perspective is that if you're a socialist and you're not trying to be where any sort of mass action is at least trying to percolate up, uh, then you're not really doing your job as a revolutionary socialist. And so I sought out the uh, kind of progressive youth organization and was eventually invited to one of their study groups and continued to show up to their meetings and study groups. I think, and I was very upfront about my participation in this kind of non-sectarian post-Trotskyist grouping uh, and really emphasized that I was seeking out something that was non-sectarian. And in fact, at that time, they also, or at least some of their leadership was also very inclined to kind of the notion that their mass organization was non-sectarian and was very open to kind of ideological difference. Um, and so I participated there. And, and the Progressive Youth Organization, go ahead. So, I'm sorry, that's common in um, Leninist front groups where you have a, you know, a sort of shell organization that allows for pluralism and then you have a more doctrinally delineated you know center to that organization which is basically the real direct it's, it's like the real direction you find that when these groups are very successful and the front group gets out of their control they don't like it you know so it's I don't oh, know. yeah that's that's very much what happened here um, yeah i was in a i was in a trotskyist uh, front group that's Definitely how I started, you know, rubbing shoulders with um, Leninism. And and actually, I was going to say this is that Trotskyism tends to appeal more on the on the coasts. And, uh, you know, good old fashioned beefsteak Stalinism has more of a a hold on the heartland. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't know. I thought Trotskyists generally didn't do front groups, which is interesting to me. (laughs) But but, V.I.S. Are you kidding me? Like, no, that's true. Oh, fair enough. They did enter into the labor movement. Although I don't know if that's a front group. Well, and I mean, the and the IS is actually like, you know, some interesting like uh, post like Trotskyist thing that got re-Trotskified or something. It's, it was there was always like a weird bird. But like, yeah, no Trotsky front groups. Like any flavor of ideology does any flavor of like uh, strategy. Interestingly, like the interesting thing to me about approaching Gonzalo thought and again, uh, we covered, uh, what's this guy's name? Oh, yeah. Abimiel Guzman, a.k.a. Comrade Gonzalo, on uh, episode 55, The Shining Path and the Future of Peru, which features a questionable Scarface theme. Um, and <laughs> so this guy's a Peruvian Maoist. And, you know, you can't really talk about Maoism, and especially not this um, Maoism like, or MLM, I should say, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, multi-level marketing. Um, you can't really talk about this stuff without thinking about 
not just a core periphery, like between countries, which is of course, we're kind of like not thinking too hard about that. If we're going to try to adapt Gonzalo thought to Kansas city, but you know, you're also thinking about core periphery within the country. Well, and I'll say, well, and the thing is like, you know, the, the fixation on Gonzalo thought, yeah, it seems to be like this kind of, uh, you know, fixation on like, you know, violence almost is like this, I don't know. This is almost like what Elaine Badu called like the passion for the real. But honestly, I would respect it more if they, they were like basically if they had like a solid drug trade as like a basis for money and were up in the mountains like with, you know, armed like grouplets like that actually be pretty sweet, honestly. Well, the irony here is that they're essentially like like left communist in a lot of their critiques, you know, and like in their tactics, they're like, you know, very terrorist, very like insurrectionist in a in a certain sense like it's mostly towards the left and it's in fact so counter the nominal left that they some this is the type of group that sometimes behaves like fascists yeah i i mean i think i think there's a couple interesting things to point out which is uh, about uh, the guzman aspect of this um when i was uh like kind of entering into this mass organization, the progressive youth organization. I mean, my sense was that the Gonzalo stuff was there, but it was much less present uh, than it is now. Um, in fact, this is kind of what one of the major splits uh, within the kind of Maoist grouping that existed, which ultimately became Red Guards, uh, was over was how much the Gonzalo stuff would be emphasized. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the black red guard or Chris Winston. Um, now he's from, he's like the St. Louis Maoist guy. And, you know, I, I still talk to him every once in a while, but his whole deal was that, you know, you're going to look batshit insane to like, I don't know any normal working class person. If you're like talking about this ultra violent, you know, Peruvian communist, you know, who slaughtered peasants. <laughs> I mean, come on. That's, right. Right. And that's that, that nice was the central hear. split was over these sort of kind of Gonzalo white lunatic versus MLM, whatever, you know, Chris Winston wants to call it, Black Red Guard wants to call it. Uh, split was all about was like, how how big of lunatics are we going to be? Um, <laughs> so, so just like, just how honest we're going to be about our, ba- our like ideological background more or less, like, because it's one thing, it's one thing to like, be like, this is a bad look, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't, I think it was even, I, I don't think it was about dishonesty. I, you know, I'm maybe I'm kind of, you know, covering for Chris here, but I, I think it was more about like a matter of strategy and where they are at right now like kind of you know i think chris is i may be misrepresenting him i i I can't speak for him but i think chris's perspective was we're like very much starting at kind of ground zero and as such like we're very much in a point of gathering forces and like a process of you know kind of constructing a mass movement and you're not going to do that by scaring people into it by saying, you know, 
if you're a revisionist, you get the hog's head on your door or the cat, like, which is stolen from the, you know, shining path, uh, which, you know, nailed dead cats on people's, on class enemies' doors, you know, whoever they may be, right? So in a lot of ways, I think this was a lot about, like, posting style in a way. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Well, like, yeah, okay. I mean, when I, I remember when I was um, an anarchist, or I, was, I, was, I wasn't really an anarchist per se, but um, during the time... Give it the old life, try. But when, during the time in my life when I told the Marxists I met that I was an anarchist and the anarchists I met that I was a Marxist... And I was around an insurrectionary anarchist type of scene. What I found was a lot of the kind of posturing that gets taken to psychotic levels in groups like Red Guards is there ideologically in some of the more reasonable seeming left groupings. Like, you know, I mean, if somebody, somebody, you can't be in an anarchist scene for that long before somebody hands you like, armed joy or something like that you know oh you know the struggle is all about kneecapping journalists or whatever i mean that's it that's it's bad shit right but it's it's interesting to me you sort of wonder what creates this niche for a more ultra violent kind of posturing that i mean it seems like it's only really resolved itself in pranks like jake was saying you know, these people aren't actually picking up guns and waging people's war in the woods because they'd be crushed immediately, right? Uh, there's no social basis for for their people's war. And and like, yeah, these it doesn't sound like these are like the you know the Huey Newtons of their community. It sounds like they're like kind of nerd. Yeah, that's a good question. Like, what kind of what kind of folks are these? Like, is is it mostly like students, or do they are they picking up like you know actual you know maybe like lumpen or or working class people, um, or is it kind of like like kind of typical you know like Marxist left milieu? Yeah, so I think in a lot of ways, uh, given how much they criticize the DSA for being petty bourgeois, because you know. I don't know what exactly their criteria are. I got into a number of debates with them about, you know, kind of their identity politics of class. They really fetishize like a very particular sort of worker. But their original base, or at least their original mass organization, where a lot of the original cadre were drawn from, uh, were college students. Um, specifically, okay. kind of the the kernel of that. Progressive Youth Organization or PYO Mass Organization was the UMKC Debate Club. Uh, Interesting. Really? So, so yeah, they talk about this in some of their documents, actually. Um, wow. Okay. But like, um, and, and a lot of the reason why that is is because they were also kind of these were theory heads. The Maoists were theory heads coming into this. Uh, they found other theory head people. Some of the Maoists you know, who were kind of already part of a failed attempt to build some sort of national United States unity around some sort of MLM program were from UMKC. And so they had kind of recruited from there where they were. And a lot of the initial campaigns were based on the college campus. Ultimately, though, um, there, there were a lot of, you know, I would say, you know, kind of more traditional working class and lumpen people. 
it was, I would say, one of the more diverse revolutionary organizations on a lot of the axes, whether it's uh, gender, race, and class, stuff like that. Uh, so there was like a lot of diversity there. It wasn't just students, but kind of the kernel of it was students. We met in the UMKC debate club building house that they had and stuff like that. So like, that's where it was centered at first. I mean, and I guess like the shining path, you know, was started by a former university professor. So, you know, I'm sure that's probably, it's probably a thing they could point to like, Hey man, you know? Yeah, I think this is one of the great ironies of the MLM group, which is they criticize the DSA for being kind of petty bourgeois because they're kind of like educated pink and white collar workers oftentimes. Uh, and so, but they are too. And this is kind of like you'd point this out about Chairman Gonzalo uh, and they'd be like, well, you know. But that you know, he really didn't recruit out of the university or something like that. They'd really gloss over that aspect of it, you know, to really ground it in some sort of originally proletarian and peasant struggle or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting component of these groups, too, is that I've noticed with some of the Maoist front groups that because of their commitment to something like what they'd call the mass line, they actually can pick up some people in the community who, I mean... They might be alienated, and that's why they're attracted to left politics, but they are – maybe the class composition will be a little bit more diverse than some left groupings, and, and even in terms of gender. I remember the um, – you, you'll see these Maoist groups have little flare-ups. I remember the the Revolutionary Student Coordinating Committee was the name of one that was back when I was in college that was going on in New York, and they almost seemed reasonable – because of the degree to which they didn't really wear their their stuff about Maoism on their sleeve at first and until you kind of got to know what you were looking at. And they would kind of try to mobilize around certain things that would get the student body fired up or or something like or just kind of, you know, parasitism on on anything real that happens. And I guess what what's funny though is that no matter how much they can kind of get these scattered, alienated people from a diverse class background. It does. And I mean, I actually would agree with you that I I don't think you can just point at people and go like, oh, they're petty bourgeois, like they have nothing to say, you know, and it it becomes a class identity politics. Absolutely. Um, And so I don't I don't think we need a prolier than now kind of fetishism. Right. But when you look just as a theoretician, even when you look for something interesting, I mean, for me, it would be to see working class groups forming, you know, uh, working class self-activity of some kind. And no, I mean, these groups tend to come out of, um, you know, even if workers get involved, that core elite, you know, it's not to say that you can't have people from different social positions involved in your movement, but that core, the gurus, you know, always end up right. those students. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do want to say, though, that like the original cadre of the Revolutionary Collective, which is kind of the antecedent to, to the Revolution Red Guards, um, there was, you know, a significant component who were kind of blue collar proletarian types. So like, I, I think it's important to also emphasize that, that, that like it, it was not students who were the core cadre 
it was some sort of combination of student blue collar sort of or grad student blue collar crossover here. Um, well, this kind of brings me to my next question, because like, you know, what you really want. So they, they described it as like a mass organization at its peak. Like how many people would you say were involved in the kind of overall, not just like Red Guards, but the front group, like kind of the whole the whole thing? Uh, rough estimate. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd say, I mean, I think the interesting thing about the Red Guards is they were, as far as I was aware, outside of the IWW, which was quite small, I think, at that time. They were the only other organized left group before Bernie in Kansas City, as far as I was aware. Um, and so they actually kind of timed their emergence quite well. And so, you know, with the rise and in interest in socialism, they were able they were the only group, you know. And so a lot of people started coming there. And I think at their peak, they had somewhere between, you know, I'd say, 25 to 40 members, you know, somewhere around there in the mass organization, progressive youth organization. Yeah. And so I think it's important to differentiate here between, you know, the Revolutionary Collective or the Red Guards, which was the cadre organization, which was much smaller. I'd say when I was there, it had maybe 10 people maximum, maybe more, uh, but really close to about 10 or less than a dozen. So so the cadre organization, kind of what they would consider the real kind of vanguard party aspect, I suppose, or the independent, you know, vanguard collective working towards some sort of national unity with other Maoists uh, was quite small. It was about 10. But the mass organization, progressive youth organization, had about 40 at its peak, I'd say. Um, so, I mean, they could almost fill a whole... Uh a whole meeting hall really wow yeah yeah we had to move spaces uh we had to move out of that debate club once we got about 15 and then you know we moved to man like kind of uh kind of a community center uh in kansas city which was much larger and had a lot more space um but that's the thing though because like one thing that's bizarre looking at like some of their writing well first of all like talking about that as like a mass group you know, that does, like that's the thing, like critiquing like the class composition at, of groups at this level is almost kind of pointless when it's like that small, um, because again, like again, or they call themselves a mass group, but there's no real mass here. If there's if like they're at the peak, you're talking less than 50 people, you know, like that's that's not a mass. And so, you know, and that's regardless of ideology, whether it's you know, left communism or Maoism or whatever, that's really at the base of a lot of like the kind of hysteria and bizarre shit that you see like in these sects and like leftist grouplets and the way that like the kind of micro politics of all this plays out. Right. And that's what makes it so bizarre, like reading like their writings where they use these, all this language is kind of copy pasted from, you know, Maoist writings talking about politics, actually dealing with like hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in China and then transpose it to their sort of like uh, inter intersect feuds, you know, in this in this like small town in the Midwest, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, th I think there's a couple things. I think one, the mass label was more was less a statement about its size and more kind of a statement about you know, kind of maybe aspirational size, but also like a statement about who could participate, you know, 
in their words, the masses, which I found incredibly, you know, condescending. Um, and I mean, yeah. 40 people ended up being interested. So, I, I mean, I think Jake has a great point there. I mean, the proof is in the pudding sometimes, right? And and also, when you look at the level of insanity, a lot of time it, on the left day, I mean, so much of the detachment and derangement has to do with the fact that there aren't really stakes anymore. It's really these inter-sectarian feuds where there's there's no social basis to actually advance something meaningful. And so they're, they're really just, you know, it's like when small town politics gets really, really heated. You know, it's like the small potatoes people fight over almost gets the most vicious. Yeah, but that's, um, you know... There's a way in though that out of all of the like activist groups, like it's usually some kind of vague anarchists or these kind of, I don't know, these kind of like mass line Maoists that are best at handling, you know, whatever does come up in the social fabric. Because yeah, I agree with you. There's when there is like something like a social demands that pop up, often it can have a small town, you know, resentment vibe and not seem that important but like i don't know what else you know a political group is that doesn't want to participate in elections is supposed to do other than like hear people out and then you know try to do some you know try to set things in motion or whatever like yeah there was a real tension within the organization about what to do um like one of the big debates was like how much would kind of you know mutual aid like free stores and stuff like that uh, be a part of what the mass orgs did, right? So versus how much of it would be something more militant or about organizing for some sort of action or something like that. So th- like these sorts of questions were coming up. What were I kind think. of the most militant? It, you said militant there. What were the kind of most militant things that kind of got proposed and shot down and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm sure it got kind of crazy <laughs> in terms of what people were willing to think about. You know, I, I you know, I, I don't think it was at least my sense in the mass organization meetings that I was a part of, there was never anything particularly outlandish. Yeah, you know, that you was emitting out the cadre meeting to hear about potential assassinations. You know, I don't know. I, I mean, I think there was stuff like, you know, when uh, the member who was expelled happened, there was like an ongoing harassment campaign, like slashing tires, threatening to like, you know, come to someone's house and beat them up, stuff like that. Like that, that stuff was definitely kind of emanating out of the cadre organization for sure. I mean, you and to be fair, like I've. I remember having in non-official meetings at Occupy talking about even crazier shit than what like Grant suggested. Um, and I even proposed crazier shit than what Grant just suggested. So, you know, it's by no need, it's by no means, you know, uh, limited to like hyper ideological sects. So, yeah, I mean, I think within the mass organization, there was a real sense that everyone who was participating for the most part really did want to build like a mass communist movement in the United States, or at least in Kansas city. And understood that that was going to take a lot of different vectors. Um, you know, you know, I, I think a lot of the mass actions that the re- that kind of the revolutionary collective 
what like there was a sense that people wanted to build some sort of mass communist movement or mass socialist movement or mass revolutionary movement in Kansas City, and they knew that that would need to take a lot of different forms, whether it's tenant organizing or some sort of mutual aid program or having a big anti-Trump rally to draw people in. So I th- I think like that's where most people's heads were, you know. I think there was a, a real emphasis, and I, you know, you guys read my kind of half-assed critique that I wrote to them when I left, Uh, like there was a real emphasis on seeming militants, you know, so they did like uh, self-defense trainings where they would kind of do half-assed, you know, practice fights and stuff like that. Uh, And also, you know, people had started buying guns, things like that. So, so this this kind of just yeah it sounds basically kind of like a vector for the stuff that was kind of happening in the left anyway around the, that time yeah so pretty much everything you described is stuff that like happened here locally it just wasn't all through one group yeah exactly I I think like once DSA was founded I think kind of the thought for a lot of people was that these mass organizations whether it was progressive youth organization or serve the people Kansas City were going to be kind of the location that attracted like revolutionary socialists or communists, uh, people who were invested in revolution rather than kind of some sort of, you know, Bernsteinian sort of reformist program, social democracy, things like that. You know, so I, I, you know, so I think that's important. I think where the real kind of, I don't, I don't want to say insanity, but, like the culty stuff and the real bizarre thinking that manifested itself in like beating up the old guy or, you know, nailing pig's heads to the wall to scare off people from voting in a primary or something like that, or from voting. No, it's for voting for Beto O'Rourke at wow. UP Austin's campus. Oh, so oh that's voter suppression. I, wow. I actually support that. That That's actually <clears throat> cool. Never mind. So that, like that's what the pig's head was really kind of about, I think. But where the real kind of the source point of the insanity f- for me, or as I saw it, was kind of this emphasis on the correctness of the line, um, paired with their kind of militant posting style. Uh, and I say this because like they were emphatic that they had the correct line, and if like you truly believe like you know kind of from like epistemological level like if you truly believe that you have the correct line then anything that deviates from your line is an obstacle to you know any real mass action if that makes sense to like to any real revolution everyone has to fall in line with your line or be destroyed so I think that that's really, for me, kind of the source point was this lack of humility about the possibility that they could be wrong. Yeah. And again, this is like this is like a broader kind of thinking pattern that exists even outside of sects. You know, I think a lot of the reason people disappear into theory, including myself, although I think I've kind of stepped out of this a little bit, even if I've researched it, is you're looking for some kind of magic formula. Right. You think I got if I find the magic formula and that's what's going to allow us to proceed forward and get out of this thing. And if you think you found the magic formula, yeah, then you're going to be really combative because, you know, all these people are keeping, you know, me from implementing the, the golden plan. And so they need to be dealt with and expunged so that we can proceed on the right path, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is also the appeal 
of the Red Guards to a lot of the most committed people was they knew that they were certain of their line. Not only that, they were willing to act to enforce it. But not only that, like they had a plan and they would elaborate on it. They would say, you know, the way to make revolution is through the construction of a cadre organization, which becomes the leading communist party. And through the process of protracted people's war, uh, this is how we're going to do it. Like they were like, unlike anyone in DSA or many other sects, you know, that I've encountered, they have like a very specific plan, no matter, you know, like that was the appeal. And, the plan was explicitly militant too. There was no shying away from the fact that revolution is going to be brutal. It's going to require violence uh, to overthrow the existing state. And I, you know, and it also had a sense of urgency that was kind of non-existent on the left Uh, at the same time. Like we need revolution now. And I I think that's also one of the major kind of attractance of this specific sort of sect. And I, I think that was the attraction, especially to like uh, oppressed groupings within the working class to it too. They were like, yes, we're doing things now. We already have this incredible trauma. Like we need to fix it now so that my suffering can stop. Like it was very forefront there. I, I think that was really the central appeal they had the correct line. They knew they had the correct line. They had a plan, and they're going to enact it now. But did they though? I mean, like, I mean, this is the problem with I mean, this is the problem with protracted people's war, right? It's like an incredibly vague schema. You're in strategic retreat, so you're small and you do little guerrilla things. Great. Then you eventually are successful enough where you have a stalemate. Great. Eventually, you win the stalemate, and you have superior power, and so you're able to crush them, and you go on the strategic offensive. Like, this is sort of, like, it's a very vague plan. This is something I pointed out to them every time. I was like, is there any elaboration on this? How do we do this? It seems like, you know, we need to build up a mass organization before we can even consider strategic retreat. We're not even retreating. No one's attacking us. (laughs) Right? Um, Right? Yeah. Well, the problem is that it's a framework that, you know, there's... There's a uh, situation that progressive or um, protracted people's war, you know, refers to, but that's not what's happening. Like, and so if you wanted to be more specific about it, you would have to acknowledge it's, <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah. Where, where, where are the peasants? You know, who's going to feed you? It, the American peasantry is not uh, rushing to the, well, there isn't an American peasantry. I mean, that's the thing. You're transposing this whole thing on... Um, it, as, uh, I think Ezra, you were pointing out at the very beginning, I mean, there's, there's just not, it's like, so anachronistic. It just doesn't like what you live in a, you live in a city in, in America. Yeah. And I think this is the interesting point, Grant, is that a lot of like kind of the mythos that the cadre used, the red guards, the revolutionary collective at that time, whatever they called themselves is the same people um, used was they kind of employed the mythos of like Mao 
uh, and kind of like, oh, yeah, we did start small. Like, did you know the Communist Party of China started with 60 members and the original conference was 13 delegates that represented and they met on a boat? Look at us. We've got 40 members already in one city. Think about L.A., Pittsburgh, New York, Austin, etc., right? Like Charlotte, <laughs> Tampa, whatever, right? Like yeah. they really relied on this mythos to like – to and honestly, like every maneuver that they made to kind of rein in the mass organization was kind of mirroring each stage of Mao's own development, like theoretically, right? How how many uh, branches did they have, and like how is is this uh, typical for Red Guards organization? Are they you know especially you know big on their like spectacle or, or what, what can you tell me? Like I, I mean I that? think I, I can't speak to like Los Angeles or Pittsburgh or New York or Tampa or Austin or Charlotte or wherever else, but I, I will say like like again they kind of relied on the Mao posting style. Right. So kind of aping that sort of, you know, speech style and sort of aggressive kind of name calling and identifying sort of, ah, you're a rightist because you disagree with us because we have the correct line and we're the Revolutionary Party. Or harkening back to historic moments in the Chinese Communist Party's struggle, you know, for a communist China. Right. And kind of drawing these parallels out to show why they're right or why this is a correct line, even though it seems like it's going nowhere in a moment yeah and it is it is anachronistic because it's like i could see like latching onto this as a first world leftist in like 1965 you know like that like that may like i get that because yeah it really does seem like there's like this rising wave of like third world guerrilla movements that will surround the core the same way like mao surrounded the cities but like at this point you know in the two in the in the uh in the teens the 2000 teens it's you know like what are you doing like china china is literally basically like a state capitalist like they're all billionaires like what, 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 yeah. what, what are you doing yeah and i mean i i think it's more than that i think the value of the maoistry wasn't just like ppw they i you know i'm a better communist and, and revolutionary socialist for being in their mass organization PYO because I was exposed to notions of like the mass line and kind of uh, two line struggle and things like this, which I thought were incredibly useful. Um, but what you discover is like the notion of the mass line is incredibly vague. Is it, Oh, you hear, okay, you go out, you find out, you know, uh, you know, some community has a problem and, you bring it to the meeting and you say, okay, what's our slogan for this? Or what's the Maoist line on this? And you go out and tell them you're doing a thing and they better join you because this is how you're going to solve it. Or is it, you know, I don't know, something more, I don't know, dialectical, like where you're actively trying to synthesize your own analysis with kind of actual ongoing concrete things right like to what degree is there a synthesis or is this just an attempt to kind of through propaganda or agitation to impose your line on the masses right you know and and same with two-line struggle right you realize in the mass organization you try and have this struggle over what we should do but quickly you realize two-line struggle only applies within the cadre organization and so all of your arguments are kind of futile 
in a way. Maybe, maybe let's talk about like what, what is two-line struggle because I'm familiar with the mass line, but I don't hear about two-line struggle much. Like the, the mass line, if you actually want to read something that articulates this, there's a great pamphlet by Julius Martov in like 1894 uh, on agitation where he is basically spelling out the mass line. And, you know, it, you don't have to be a Maoist to think that that's a good idea. Um, but uh, so what's this two-line struggle? I mean, I think the two-line struggle, I don't know if you've seen, you know, MLMs posting another acronym, USU, or uh, Unity Struggle Unity. So you start oh, from a point thought, of unity. And I then, thought they were just like, you know, ooh-wooing wrong. Okay. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, USU is Unity Struggle Unity. So it's this principle that you come together as an organization unified around a certain line something comes up and there are two competing lines that are kind of debated and in in that process um one divides into two and the incorrect line is cast off uh and the new line is advanced and so everyone unifies around that line so again like there are kind of there's like this what, ex- what was interesting to me about the Maoist stuff was that there was this kind of democratic core that everyone who was participating in the organization, or, or it seemed as though there was one, that, that we were engaging with the masses in good faith and we wanted to kind of synthesize legitimately with their participation how to move forward. You know, likewise within the organization, it took into account kind of the mass membership struggle over what to do in a democratic fashion, in a way that was supposed to lead to some sort of synthesis around a new line. Right. But what, what, but again, like, you know, like the dialectic of uh, democracy and centralism, uh, as it actually played out, it was more central than democratic. Right. So, yeah. Well, what I've, um, what I've noticed too, is that this really isn't exclusive to this kind of, to even groups that claim the democratic centralist, type of uh organizing principles mm-hmm. i know um esri and i esri and i were involved in a, a group that really put democracy first and foremost in a republican a democratic republican kind of sense as its main kind of thing right and so yeah I, organizing principle i thought that was really interesting because i was used to and sick of on the left, you know, the the way democracy was not ever really important and, and things would always clearly be run by a clique or a little scene. I guess um, it, it brings me to two things. Um, one is that as soon as we started criticizing the uh, central core of the organization, in the way you were talking about where... Um, you know, Maoists are very good at, you know, they're, they're like insults where you're, you sort of chain together Trotskyite revisionist, left communist, ultra rightist record, imperialist running dog, social fascist. Yeah. Yeah. You just, the more adjectives, the more nuts you sound, but they think it sounds convincing. And so, I mean, you know, these people who claimed to be against the kind of authoritarianism on the left or, or, or for a more um, democratic, way of doing the left. I mean, the second you started critiquing the strategy of the organization, wrecker, wrecker this, wrecker that, you know. No, precisely. This is exactly what happens. Yeah. And so well, so I wanted to highlight that, but then also to ask you, I mean, 
you said there was the 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 way they interpreted the mass line was that you would go you would go to the community and bring stuff back and i think that's very interesting there's almost an, a colonialism to that 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 if if they were criticizing themselves they might come up with where you know, did did you ever find people really kind of brought their own problems and were able to use the group to solve their own problems? Or was it mostly like looking for new recruits through that method? Yeah, I mean, I think early on, uh, there was some sort of at least collaboration, um, like, again, like, because their base was so connected to the university. Um, there were they participated in a lot of uh you know, campus struggles about, you know, the ineligibility of undocumented students for scholarships or the fact that undocumented students had to pay international tuition rather than uh, in-state tuition, things like that. So they got very involved with that. They got involved with um, some like on-campus sexual assault stuff um, among among a number of other issues uh, at, at the university. You know, and and that was all brought from other students, right? Um, they worked with uh, KS Moda, which was uh, kind of the kind of the DACA, the group that organized around DACA stuff in Kansas City. Um, and when I joined, they were actively participating and trying to build some campaigns around it, but they were unwilling to be flexible on like what level of militancy was acceptable or what the escalation plan was going to be or where they would start the escalation, right? They, they tended to start at a higher order of escalation than other people rather than kind of, okay, we're going to write them a letter and then build up to, okay, we're going to have a meeting with them to, we're going to occupy their office to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so there was early on, again, I think the, the early kind of in Kansas city, at least the kind of origins or the early days of this group was kind of, I think, you know, not as fanatical, not, they weren't Gonzalo white lunatics yet. Interesting. Right. Like, so um, there, Oh, go ahead. Well, just in the uh, documents that you sent us, like, it seemed like from their formation, right. They, emphasize the centralism of democratic centralism. That's how something like this is different than, you know, uh, the red party thing that Grant and I were involved with is that they really wanted to emphasize the centralism. They were polemicizing in part against consensus democracy, um, which is, you know, quite a, I mean, you know, if you've ever done like organizing consensus democracy is the highest bar possible. Um, it usually becomes, you know, a label for like almost consensus, you know, cause it's consensus is like a hundred percent. You gotta go like, you gotta go through, like, you can't like, it's, it's, um, it's pretty high bar. So and you, and usually just were, ends up being run by clicks too, but they're the ones, but it all still happens in right. the meeting itself. Right. It's, in, it's influence. And then, I mean, there's, there's scenes where, um, you know, right. Death of Stalin, where it's, it's technically consensus democracy. Cause you know, the, the guy who can have you shot gives you a, a look and then you raise your hand during the vote. Well, well yeah, that, that's, um, I mean, yeah, that was literally personal like central committee. There's an interpersonal yeah. version of that that can play out in little punk scenes. Absolutely. And so I'm sure when they were polemicizing against ultra democracy and that tyranny of structurelessness and how, you know, centralism is going to, you know, be the guarantor 
against that sort of thing. Because of course, if you take the worst possible version, and to be fair, often in like a left scene, you will see the worst possible version of an idea unfolding or, you know, a, a farcical echo of the worst possible version where you can't literally get shot, but you know, no one wants yeah, to be looked at that way. So everybody votes the same way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like, again, like the centralism was always present and, and I think that's undeniable. And maybe that was kind of like the kernel that led it to where it was ultimately going to end up. Right. We, you know, hard to say, but there was like a real emphasis on kind of more than just coming up with the Maoist slogan for problems that were going on. There was kind of like active analysis of how we should go about doing this an active engagement with the people who were actually, you know, bringing problems to the group. Right. So I, I so I think it was like they saw themselves Less is coming to save in that in those early moments and like more people who are actively activating people in struggle. You know, I, I think it's important maybe to kind of zoom out a little bit in, in the timeline and think about like kind of where they started, which was, you know, I would say more open to mass participation and more open to kind of I wouldn't say mass decision making, but more open to feedback and criticism from the mass orgs. Um, in the early days to where they are now, which is this kind of hyper-centralized, uh, n- not only cadre organization hyper-centralized, but like hyper-centralized mass organizations now, uh, which are, I think, more or less non-existent in Kansas City at the moment. And I think like what made this turn happen was kind of twofold. I think one was the growing emphasis of Red Guards Austin on the Maoist movement in that time uh, and their publishing house, uh, Fourth Sword Publishing. And, you know, I'm kind of sad they didn't buy more books while they were, you know, selling them because they're kind of cool and funny relics to have. Uh, Sick name, though. Yeah, I know. It's, well, Fourth Sword is ideology. I mean, come on. Uh, So... Um, so, and, and like, you know, Chris Winston and his analysis is they got bought off by red guards with a lot of sweet swag. Like they published like the interview with chairman Gonzalo in book form. They published like the MLM basic course, which was pioneered by, I, I think the Nepalese communist party, but maybe Naxal, I can't remember. Um, and a number of other books, uh, like they're kind of basic proletarian feminist book, theoretical book and things like that. So there was like. Lots of publishing coming out, which kind of the non-Gonzalo White tendency within it did not have. So I think I think that's a major part of it. The other part, though, is kind of going from the sole communist or socialist organization in Kansas City uh, to having to compete with DSA and having to compete with other organizations which were increasingly successful relative to them. Um. So, so like in the moment, so they were timed well in the sense that they were able to kind of get that initial Bernie bump of, of people interested in, you know, left politics. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, it was kind of poorly timed in that DSA started to overtake them and they became increasingly frustrated because their methods of organizing weren't working and their methods of organ and, and the fact that they, you know, were largely terrified or like, or too self-conscious to actually, you know, talk to the so-called masses. Um, this is like, I mean, that. go ahead. 
I was gonna say that actually, yeah, that clarifies so much. Like that explains like why they're so basically going in so hard on the DSA and why they perceive DSA as like this this threat to the proletarian consciousness or whatever. Because um, yeah, as an outsider living in the United States, and you know, the DSA pops up, you're not going. You're like, that's eh, better than nothing. Whereas there, it's like, oh fuck, like we were we were on we were on the path. We were on. We were on our. We were on our way, and then these people came and brought all this revisionism in. Yeah, Fuck. no, no. It's, this is what Mal warned us about. You no, know, it is very much like a group of people who were getting very frustrated that their growth wasn't that they were kind of stagnating, and not only stagnating, that many people in Kansas City were turning against them. Like before, a lot of people were like, "Hey, you guys want to do stuff? Cool. Let's like, let's do stuff." Uh, whereas as they started burning more bridges, as they started, you know, endlessly online harassing people on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that, that people just decided that they weren't worth it. Right. So like they were like, they panicked, they became undisciplined in this moment where people were openly contradicting or criticizing them. And rather than doubling down and demonstrate, putting their money where their mouth is and demonstrating why their ideology was superior and why it would work, uh, they took the easy route and decided to kind of wreck and destroy everything else uh, so that they could be the last one standing. You know, and, and that requires becoming more and more centralized and more and more culty, right? Like, only if you have like a more, like, as you start like grooming and cultivating people to totally buy into what you're doing unquestioningly and hate every other organization that's ever existed like there was very much like an act of cultivation when i was there of distaste for you know anarchists of any sort the iww or the dsa or the green party or whatever left grouping or or the attempt to build some sort of united front with anarchists the green party you know some put like the post trotskyist organization i belong to stuff like that right like like there was active like cultivation of hatred of any like unreasonable like with competitors no other than the, like competitors yeah um, yeah like they uh, were on, all on the market or records like without reason like, they would never give like a real concrete reason other than to say well this one person who we expelled was bad and shit talked us online all right like that was the only concrete example of people being wreckers like had they you know been like hey we kicked this person out because we didn't like the way they were acting you know and they didn't really agree with this at all so you know let's move on they they kind of doubled down on demonizing everyone else so that no blame could be put on them you know like like the criticism self-criticism only applied to people who were in opposition to the cadre yeah so even that even though they weren't like you know, rah, 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 we're the most democratic in the world. They were still focusing very heavily in the texts on criticism, self-criticism, you know, and in, of course talking about it in the scary United Red Army way, but all the same, like, you know, a, making a big show of being open to objections. Um, so I guess I have one last question. Um, so uh, how does like serve the people fit into this? I've heard that thrown around. Yeah, so Progressive Youth Organization was kind of the first mass organization, and it was based out of the university. However, it became the catch-all for everyone who was interested in, you know, doing any capitalist work. And so you had large amounts of kind of non-student workers joining, 
maybe you know like lumpen types etc uh, you know i don't really believe in that label but you know that you know kind of whatever like non-students were joining basically and so the group grew larger and larger and as a result you know the contradictions started revealing themselves it was a mass organization that projected out the fact that it was open ideologically uh there were increasingly large confrontations uh, between members and the group, uh, specifically, you know, people who were bringing up criticisms uh, specifically about disability in the organization. Um, you know, you know, and, and this came to a head. They kind of denounced them for idpol uh, and, you know, called them wreckers and things like that. Uh, and so, you know, and, you know, I was involved because I like, participated in maybe like an insensitive joke uh and you know and like my response was oh thank you for bringing that up i'll be a little bit more conscious about that i'll, I'll take that into some serious consideration kind of the response from cadre members who were involved in that situation uh was well no you're wrong that's a liberal line we could never do anything wrong kind of response like very dismissive and so this kind of created like a large amount of tension within the organization and you could see kind of two groupings form kind of the cadre aligned and the kind of anarchist uh more amorphous political line who are really interested in kind of issues of identity are really invested in that struggle in a way that you know the red guards weren't or you know or progressive youth organization was weren't in that moment um and so in an attempt to salvage all of the members that they had they decided to arbitrarily split the organization uh, and to serve the people uh, which was supposed to be the non-student organization of course to split it you had many of those people who were in kind of from the view of the cadre's perspective kind of problematic elements that were largely non-students and so you had to have non-students stay in the student organization. Students go to the non-student organization to fill it out. And so Serve the People's initial campaign was going to be tenant organizing. And this is this is kind of, this is the mass organization that I participated in at the end of my tenure with the MLM milieu. And they, you know, it, it became extremely frustrating to me. Because the kind of militant posting style paired with kind of stage fright or nerves or an unwillingness to engage with masses because they might not have the correct political line or you might not be able to immediately talk to them about Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, principally Maoism as the path towards liberation in these projects, uh, you know, became a real obstacle to doing any tenant organizing um you know so so serve the people makes it sounds like it's kind of like almost maybe like food not bombs or doing some kind of like you know uh serve the people stuff yeah yeah so they were basically just trying to do like a tenants union or uh, yeah so like there was a period of figuring out there um there was kind of this food not bomb sort of uh you know for lack of a better term mutual aid sort of oriented programming that was a possibility, and then the tenant organizing stuff, which was a possibility. Um, 
And we chose the tenant organizing thing because, you know, for a lot of reasons. One, we had people who were living in low-income housing in the group. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we had already kind of a material base for that. Two, uh, we didn't want to be like the dingy nonprofit, right? Like a nonprofit, but crappier, you know, with less resources. And we saw that was going to be like a failure from the beginning. And so we, we settled in on the tenant organizing stuff because it did seem, and I say that was a correct choice. Uh, it, it did seem the most promising. And so we started formulating plans like, hey, we're going to have a community meeting. So that was the first thing that we did. So, you know, we passed out flyers. Their strategy was we're going to hang out at bus stops and pass out flyers to people. Of course, you know, as someone who's been around kind of the Trotskyist milieu quite a bit, I've known a lot of people who sold newspapers. I know the point of handing out the flyer or the newspaper, whatever, is to get people in political conversations, right? And and that wasn't something that was in practice for them. They were more kind of the, hey, here's a thing that's going on. Here's a flyer. Are you interested in housing kind of stuff and, and weren't cultivating these deeper kind of political conversation. So we had this meeting, uh, which I would say about 30 people showed up. 27 of them were uh, mass organization members of PYO and Serve the People. And three were people interested in organizing around housing because they had crappy housing stuff. And they brought it, there was like, like, you know, a real interest in drawing out kind of the problems that they were facing and, you know, you know, interested in finding solutions, right. Uh, to help them. But that fell apart because the community center we were meeting in there, uh, their board of directors found out that communists were there and they said, go away. We don't want you to scare off the donors, which, you know, obviously that was going to happen in, in my mm-hmm. view. But anyways, um, so that initial thing was a failure. So we kind of went back we said, okay, not a lot of people showed up. We didn't do a good job of organizing. What do we need to do? Well, we need to learn how to organize. So I had participated in some labor notes trainings. I had read, you know, Secrets to, of a Successful Organizer a number of times, a book that's, you know, in my mind, highly underrated. Uh, and we kind of, me and another comrade, uh, set up a training for them uh, that was based on their curriculum. And of course, what happens is they chose the militant action, which was they double booked with a self-defense training. And of course, everyone went to the fun self-defense training, which seemed more militant than, you know, learning how to have an organizing conversation uh, with a tenant in your building, you know. And on top of that, you know, there were oftentimes we'd have assignments like, hey, you people who live in these apartment buildings in the area that we want to organize, why don't you have a conversation with three people? Like, let's set a goal. Everyone has a conversation with three people in the apartment complex that they live in. And of course, they were too terrified to do so and never happened. Right. And so wheels were spinning constantly and everyone was getting increasingly frustrated and including myself. And that's when I left. Um, You know, part of the frustration and part of the reason a lot of stuff didn't happen and serve the people was that because they split the group. Um, the progressive youth organization was at half capacity for a lot of the stuff that they were doing. And because they were more established and more active and had more plans already, uh, serve the people was constantly being re-recruited to, uh, do things for the progressive youth organization instead of building up their own organization or our own organization at that time. So that's what serve the people was. And I think it could have, 
you know, and again, much like the DSA, concurrently with that, there was another tenant organizing thing that popped up uh, shortly after we formed ours and was much more successful because, you know, they actively engaged with the social, like the social base and organized actual people and, you know, started out with an escalation plan, which was like a public forum that they had, which was televised. Like it was interesting. The organizer was like a researcher on housing policy stuff uh, and was like definitely a committed leftist of some sort, you know, maybe, you know, maybe social democratic, maybe a revolutionary socialist, unclear to me. I, I've never really had it on one on one conversation. That was tenants. What's, what's their position on social imperialism though? I think. That's yeah. The, that's the, that's the real line that we need to draw here. Yeah, but like, so this organization line. popped up simultaneously, just like DSA did. Uh, and again, everyone got frustrated and instead of doubling down on actually organizing kind of flamed out because, you know, they just wanted to criticize people instead of actually doing the work. <laughs> was there ever a thought of, Hey, wow. These people are doing these tact these tactics better than we are. We could, you know, let's go like at least learn from them. Yeah, no, there was like that bridge had already been exploded already with the attempt to build <laughs> like they with the attempt to build like there was I think a real promising moment to build a united front in Kansas City had they not absolutely destroyed it because we wouldn't give them full credit for everything. Um like we were starting to build progress. We were starting to like initiate some joint campaigns and stuff like that, which they just like exploded because, you know, it wasn't their campaign. They couldn't own it. They couldn't own it. And so unless they could own it, unless they could build only themselves at the expense of everyone else, they were going to destroy it if they were participating. And so they weren't going to participate with, you know, on any friendly terms with DSA or tenants KC or anything like that. Uh, I, I did want to pivot back to, um, you said something about the influence of Red Guards Austin being a factor. I know you can't speak to the specifics on the ground anywhere, but that's not really a question I'm asking. Did you get a sense of like, you know, different like tendencies in the Red Guards like that, you know, swayed them? Yeah. I mean, I think there's the Red Guard Austin, which, you know, I, I accept, you know, Black Red Guard or Chris Winston's term. Uh, as pretty aft, the Gonzalo White lunatic faction within the Red Guards. Um, and, you know, maybe the lighter duty, hey, let's build a mass organization. You know, politics are at the front. We're going to be open about what our politics are, but it's not going to be like the primary goal for them, for the non-Red Guard Austin influenced people, was to um, kind of build up mass organizations like vehicles for class struggle first, like build a movement first before trying to convert it into some sort of Maoist thing, ultimately, you know, right. Like, so like actually like put good, in good faith, build some sort of working class vehicle rather than, you know, immediately try and develop a super sectarian mass organization, which is kind of an oxymoron in my mind. So, you know, and, and I think the success of Austin Red Guards was um, the fact that they did have that was like largely due to the fact that they were doing these kind of outrageous stuff. You know, in fact, like the Kansas City Revolutionary Collective made fun of the Red Guards for a, for a brief time when I was first there. They were like, oh, they're a cult that, you know, thinks revolutionary discipline means sleeping on the floor and stuff like that. Like, like there was some sort of early antagonism with the Austin Red Guards, I think, which is the interesting thing about their turn. Uh, 
towards the Red Guards. It, the Kansas City's turned towards the Red Guards. So, I, I, you know, I think they were anti-Red Guard for a while. Um, I don't know if you guys followed any of this stuff that came out of, like, the Canadian Revolutionary Communist Party uh, with, like, uh, what is it, JMP, Jean-Paul, Jean-Mufouad Paul, uh, MLM Mayhem blog. Heard of that so, stuff. It's actually, I would say his stuff is actually, if you want, like, a sane version of Maoism, I think reading MLM Mayhem blog is a really good one. I think JMP is, you know, interesting and, you know, you know, not a lunatic. Well, he states his case. I think I, I I recall reading this guy. Like, he, he's pretty, you know, he's been exposed to analytical philosophy and is trying to, like, beef up the, you know, the sense of like typology and explanation beyond the regular like Maoist sloganeering disguises theory. Yeah, yeah, no, like he's really dedicated. I think there is like a dedicated core of MLM out there that that is less, you know, less Gonzaloite lunatics and also really dedicated to kind of advancing like a scientific Marxist project here. I think actually JMP, he had a book published by Zero Books. And I've been, I've, I've been, I message Doug every once in a while on Twitter to be like, oh, can you interview him? But it hasn't happened yet. And like, there was a similar split within the Canadian one that's a little bit more well-documented, I think, more publicly documented in a way. Um, should we bring this thing in for a landing? Uh, is there anything else? Or? I, I do want you to elaborate on a scientific Marxist project with MLM. Like, because uh, I'm, I'm interested in like, the forms of um, Leninism that continue to have like life, and by life I don't mean just like, you know, Wikipedia Marxist edging on Twitter or something, you know, like, and I'm not just talking about state power, you know, the things that like seem to animate like uh, animate people in this tradition, you know, to act politically usually get lost in history and never recover or something, like. <laughs> you know yeah i mean i think like a lot of it deals with kind of elaborating on kind of mao's understanding of a contradiction and so kind of like laying out what that process means why it is like the correct path why it is one divides into two rather than two into one so like kind of heavy emphasis on you know the maoist conception of dialectics and how we can use that to understand you know the path forward, right? And why it's important to slough off things that are wrong or why we should try and discover the things that are wrong, you know? So, I mean, I'm not super well-versed in, you know, what JMP might say about that, but I, I think there is like a real legitimate attempt to advance Marxist theory there that, that often gets covered up by like the Red Guards Austin kind of insanity, you know? And, and I think like for me, I, I really do believe that I'm a better socialist, a better revolutionary socialist, a better communist, whatever you want to call it, uh, for participating in their mass org and being exposed to kind of what they're doing. Um, I think notions of the mat, like being exposed and having in-depth conversations about the notion of the mass line and two-line struggle and their conception of what, you know, something being like a dialectical relation is or kind of different levels 
primary and secondary contradictions and things like that really at least challenged me in a serious way to consider like the way I theorize about the world. And and I think like the mass line stuff and the two line stuff, I think is also, I think was, was incredibly helpful to me because it helped me kind of re-engage with, you know, how I think we should be doing workers inquiry, you know, to, to borrow that autonomous phrase, right. Uh, and how we should be doing this sort of, uh, like engagement with people who aren't already communists or socialists or whatever, and, and how to help them develop their politics, or at least how to advance a revolutionary project when not everyone is familiar with what, you know, Marxism is or socialism or whatever. Do you think that that was the predominant experience with red guards, Kansas city? Um, you know, you know, I think the masses or among, you know, cadre or whatever, like, do you think everyone benefited as much as you did? Um, I have some, you know, very close comrades that I still talk to, like incredibly close friends of mine from that. And the ones I talk to the most, I think it was definitely, you know, positive in the same way it was for me. There were lots of lessons learned about, you know, what makes organizations fail. Lots of lessons learned about what are you know, what not to do, you know, and in some cases what to do when you're engaging, you know, with people who don't necessarily agree with you or aren't aware that there's a politics beyond liberalism and, you know, Republicans and Democrats or whatever, or a politics beyond electoral stuff. So I think, I think there's, there's, there's like that central core. There's a few people, you know, <coughs> and I think How many a lot are we of talking here out of the like, original, two or, like, like of the people of that I'm in contact with, like two or three, yeah. right? Okay. So two or three people, you would say for sure benefited from like the red guards experience and kind of encounters with the red guards, but, but like sort of in terms of the general uh, impact that the organization had, because like my, my working theory and this coming out of, you know, being an activist like long ago and kind of not being good at it is like most of the things activists do are, are counterproductive and it's, it's not a knock on activists, just, you know, it's hard to do stuff. And most of the time we put our foot in our mouths or whatever, you know, speaking in the Royal way. There's a lot of actively harmful attempts at, at putting something together. I mean, especially when you have something that kind of arises out of one of capitalism's social contradictions in an area and the left goes, this is our moment and runs to it and basically suffocates it. You know what I mean? Like a lot of these social struggles become, kind of confined by by the attempts to well this is our moment but and it's not and it's usually not much mm-hmm. improved by the kind of counter left consciousness that the red guards exhibit like in, in a way it's like you know the, the the fever pitch of like uh left on left you know like you know intra struggle or whatever i don't know in my experience usually drove people away you don't think there's any like I think it definitely some things with the red guards. Yeah, no, I think they definitely did end up, you know, driving a lot of people away from left politics or at least like ruining them because they fear like joining another left organization will be another traumatic experience. Right. So I, I, you know, I don't want to underestimate that. And I definitely like scared off a lot of people, you know, but on the other hand, like in some ways it inoculated the kind of left universe of Kansas city against 
that sort of like highly centralized cadre organization that believes in you know violent revolution now and stuff like that like that's sort of like ex- you know extremism or terroristic impulse or you know whatever you want to call it right right um the weather effect yeah you know that, that that sort of stuff like people are like well we know what not to do they remain around in some sort of zombie formation that shows up to terrorize people every once in a while and we're constantly we're reminded oh yeah that's bad don't do that like like that's like the big net positive of course it you know it damaged a lot of people's lives and ability to interact with the left too though for sure had to ring that one out of you sorry <laughs> no yeah no no i don't you know i don't want to be pollyannish on this you know yeah <gasps> i but, appreciate but, i mean yeah you know, like, i'm making sense of your own experiences and i i, I could appreciate that you know, yeah, no, I, mean, I, mean, I look back at stuff on the left that's been crazy and been involvement with stuff that um sort of left a sour taste in my mouth i mean i do i mean it's time I spent and I do have to learn some lesson from it. Right. So I, I totally understand that as well. But, but there's also the sense of like, you know, I don't know it, while I was in this Trotskyist front organization, it was the first time I really thought of myself as like a, a communist or something. They're, they you know, arguing for, you know, something beyond like managed capitalism or something, you know, like there are things that you do pick up from these things, but uh, yeah. It's I, I yeah. There's there could be a, a profoundly mixed legacy even if there's a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, I mean, again, like again, this is maybe just my perspective in that I'm incredibly optimistic. You know, I'm I'm very much like an optimism of the will type person, uh, and so like you know, you know, no, you have one, the right mindset. One, I'm I'm incredibly open to like if those people decide to like chill out and like actually want to you know do something productive. You know, they might have to kind of demonstrate some actual contrition here, right? But, you know, I'd be open to them to returning, right? Uh, you know, but again. Well, they say it's not a failure if you learn something, you know? So, and, and honestly, this is actually fairly illuminating for me just because, you know, a lot of this was, feels pretty familiar, actually. Like, it feels like a lot of this stuff would have happened anyway, for the most part, except for the weird Gonzalo shit, if it wasn't for Red Guards. Um, and, uh, yeah, it also, you know, hearing about how it kind of functions on the ground makes it under, you understand why it was a thing. Like it doesn't look as crazy on the ground as it, as it does kind of seeing like polemics on blogs or like, you know, social media posts and shit like that from the outside where you're like, what the fuck is going on over here? Um, so yeah. Um, and, uh, it makes me glad I just joined the organization, you know? Oh, wow. Cool. Feels, feels <laughs> good. Congratulations. <Ooh>. Jake. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> we could bring more of that uh, optimism of the will. <laughs> Truly, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, nobody's dead. Come on, let's let's not let's not act like it's like all history. I mean, honestly, like it's you know, most most, most 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 restaurants fail, and there's you know probably more collateral damage to people's lives from that than there is from you know. That's like, why we have sick. to get the economy back up. Um, that's why we need to take down these 5G towers that are causing coronavirus <laughs> to get back to work. Yeah. Because this is yeah. all bullshit. Yeah. 4G is enough, people. You can do, you, you know. <laughs> How many Gs do you fucking need, you fucks? Yep. Oh, I'm all yeah, about the Gs, it's all, baby. It's all about greed. I'm stacking yeah. Gs. Nothing's L- ever L- good L- enough. 
Nothing's ever good enough. Well, I, I don't know. At least most restaurants serve food before they fail. I don't know. Like, I just have to bring the pessimism of the intellect to this conversation. It's the other half of that Gramsci quote. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I know. Like, I'm, I, I'm just, I'm, I don't know. I, I think sometimes we self-flagellate too much. On the I know. But it, it's just, to me, it's like, well, we actively curbed proletarian struggle. But Did we? But I learned. That's the thing. That's where I think you're probably right, Jake, is that if we view left organizations as like, as having you know stopped the revolution that almost gives them too much uh credit and, and power i i guess that you know i mean i mean of the of the forces at play i feel like like i'm sorry the left is not what held back black lives matter like the left is not what's holding back like um like the the proletariat in the united states i mean i guess it depends on what you mean by the left because you mean like the democrats probably but like this the small like sects or whatever i don't think that actually has like a meaningful impact at least relative to like institutions like the government and the cia on and a money. local level i i do think it it sucks the energy out of things that could improve things yeah we're, we're yeah we're we're, talk, we're talking about a combat organization that directed most of its antagonistic energy against, you know, organized left projects that actually had some momentum, had some frustrated intellectual property Brontier, like, you know, manager, like cucked manager kind of feels, you, you know what I mean? Like that's right. But that, that, but, but that didn't stop like some other similar, like for instance, the serve the people thing. And by the way, if you need to go, that's cool. Yeah. For sure. um, yeah. Do, do you, I yeah. mean, I, I can hang on until we wrap this up. Okay, the, we we might not wrap this up in this time frame, so maybe we should just stop arguing about this. <laughs> but I mean, I, I I do want to bring up one other point about this kind of like optimism of the will, pessim of the pessimism of the intellect. I think, I think this is the, the best way to sum up what happened uh, with like the MLM, principally Maoist grouping in Kansas City, right? Um, and their mass works, right? Which is, they had the optimism of the will, but there was zero pessimism of the intellect, zero self-questioning going on. And so, I think, you know, that kind of goes back to that, you know, point about their epistemology, right? They have the correct line. So why do we need to challenge ourselves here? It's the others who are wrong. <laughs> no, it's, it's the children who are wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and I think something to take away from this is really just that whatever organization you get sucked into that seems to present all of the answers whether that's a political organization or something else entirely you know let alone whatever ideology in politics it has i mean you know be skeptical ask questions and and look out for yourself you know and 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 really uh just uh you know the, the kind of basics of uh don't forget about you know your real life you know your the, the people around you every day that kind of thing all right well Thank you, Luke, yeah. for coming on and uh, shining a light on this uh, particular chapter. Yeah, th thanks for... Uh, or at least an aspect of this phenomenon th from the last decade. Or yeah, so. shining a light on our path. Thanks for coming <laughs> along. No, this is I, I was going to make that joke, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad I could participate. I'm glad you beat me to it so I wouldn't be corny. <laughs> uh, and, Taking you know, I'll, uh, I'll well, be back whenever. Yeah. And that's it for this week. Uh... Thanks again to Luke for joining us and uh, breaking down kind of, at least in one town, what was going on with the Red Guards and what it was like to have them in the same kind of organizing milieu. Uh, yeah, hope 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 you learned something. Hope we all learned something. That's what it's all about. All right, if you want to uh, support the show, 
if times are tough, you don't want to support the show, I totally understand. But if you want to support the show, uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon. You can uh, get in our Discord that way. And uh, a few other perks. You hear things as, as we record them or early or whatever. Uh, yeah. If you want to get a hold of us, hit us up on social media, Twitter. You can email us at swampsidechance at gmail. And I think that's about it. So, until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.